Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Lowdown today. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by the head coach of Union Omaha, Dominic Casciato. Dom, welcome to the show. Thanks, Connor. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. It's been about time. I know you've been listening to the podcast for a while. Uh, we just spoke off air. <laughs> you've been quite adept at following in Adam Lawrence's footsteps, a previous guest on the show. So indeed, you're not bucking that trend anytime soon by coming on today. Yeah, Adam's actually the reason why I became a coach. So um, I guess I followed him into coaching. Now I'm following him onto the onto the podcast here. Yeah. Uh, I mean, with further ado, I'm sure I haven't listened to previous podcasts before. You're well aware of how we begin the show. Um, we begin by asking, what was your earliest football memory? I think my earliest football memory was um, playing for a team called Shiners. Uh, and it was two of my school friends, Paul Kennedy and Daniel Speckman. Uh, their dads, Stan and, and Big Paul, uh, were window cleaners. And they were both footballers in their time, loved the game. And they started a team... Um, from all the kids in this school and uh, that's where I started playing <clears throat> and I wasn't very good at first I remember I would always stop the ball in my hand and I remember Stan saying to me he was going to chop my hands off um, and I remember telling my mum I didn't want to go back because of that I was about six or seven um, but then shortly after that the World Cup 94 um, was on the screen and that was the first time I'd really watched football on the TV and Italy like my dad's Italian so Italy went all the way to the final and um, it was in America and I think the whole I guess hysteria that comes with a major tournament like that really had me hooked and, and made me fall in love with the game straight away and I think from there I just played more enjoyed it more uh, and consumed more of it and, and became a huge Spurs fan as well in the process so um, that's kind of my earliest memories in the game And I mean how soon did coaching come into play? It's funny because I, I never really saw myself as a coach. And then when I went to college in the States to, to play soccer and study, and, um, my coaches there said to me, listen, you know, we think you'd be a really good coach. You, you've got some natural traits that would make you very good. And uh, I kind of considered it. And, and then my best friend, uh, Adam Lawrence, who, who was a guest on a podcast recently, um, he'd been working for Millwall in their community scheme for a few years and then he got a job full-time with Charlton Athletic in their academy. And obviously, I wasn't the biggest player. Adam wasn't the biggest player. And when I saw that Adam was kind of forging a career for himself, it, it gave me the belief that I could do it as well. Um, so I've, I've got a lot to thank Adam for. It's interesting just to bring it back to one of your college coaches in the States saying that they saw traits in you. I mean, is there anything upon reflection your early in football days playing back home in the UK that you reflect upon now and you're like, wow, I saw the game in a different way. You could see patterns or you're more susceptible to, I don't know, human emotions, behaviours. Is there anything like that? Um, I think at the time, like I was a, I don't want to say I was a natural leader, but I was somebody that wasn't afraid to be vocal. I wasn't afraid to give direction. And I think I had a clear vision in terms of what I expected in terms of um how the game should be played or, you know, effort levels from from teammates and myself and things like that. And I think because of those things, it probably set me apart a little bit. And, you know, one of the things that we speak about now as a staff, and I think many coaches around the world speak about is as um, generations change and there's less of that vocal type leader right? and, and 
people tend to be a little bit more introverted. Um, how do you bring out those leadership qualities? Right? And I think if you knew me as a person, I think I'm pretty introverted anyway. Like I'm not the loudest guy. I'm, you know, quite a thoughtful person. But then I think I'm also quite forthright when I believe in something. Um, and I'm quite genuine in, in terms of saying what I feel and, and when I think it's appropriate. So I think getting back to your question, um, some of those qualities were kind of there and obvious to other people when I was a young person. It was it was just the way I was, right? And and I wasn't really aware of it. And as I've got older, I've had time to reflect on perhaps why they saw me in that fashion um, and spoken to teammates and things like that. Certain things start to fall into place for you and say, oh, okay, like, now I see what they're talking about. Mm. And it was, you know, one of the things I wanted to bring up in relation to that was having the foresight because you took the job at New York, Brooklyn Italians. You know, it's one of the most famous amateur teams in the whole of the States. And you had the foresight at the time to gain exposure coaching a wide variety of age groups from minis all the way through to the first team. Why was that? Yeah, I had a gap in my development. So when I first started coaching, I think I was really fortunate. Um, I, I played at a decent level without really making it. And I've been exposed to some really good coaches. Uh, and then my first job in coaching was at St. John's University for the men's soccer program there under a coach called Dave Mazer, who is a brilliant coach, a very intense guy, but again, has a real clear vision for what he wants from his team in terms of playing style, in terms of uh, what he expects in terms of standards and things like that. So I've been around some really good coaches, um, but I also started at a level where, you know, some of the players we had at St. John's were going straight into the MLS, right? So you're looking at that professional development phase. Um, and I'd never really worked with young kids. I'd coached an under-14, under-15 team uh, from Long Island, but I'd never worked with the babies, right? And I realised if I was going to be a top coach, I needed to experience everything across the spectrum. So when I went to Brooklyn Italians, I coached the under-7s for a season. Um, I remember there was kids there who wanted to be a dinosaur, didn't want to play football, you know, were, were rolling around on the grass. I'd say, hey, what are you doing? It's would say, I'm a dinosaur today, you know? Um, so I think learning how to manage those things, uh, working in the rec program, also coaching the first team at Brooklyn Italians, um, coaching our under-19s, coaching every age group in between whenever there was a, a missing coach or somebody needed coverage. I think it was a, a conscious effort for me just to kind of fill in the gaps in my own development and make sure that I was as well-rounded as possible because I think the more experiences you have, you know, the, the better your perspective becomes and the more well-rounded you become as well. I think that's an interesting point, having that kind of whole round perspective, because coming back here to North America um, in October of last year, it was four years since I left San Francisco at the time. And what I'd forgotten in the interim coming back here was watching a lot of our young coaches inside the club working. And what a lot of people actually don't know or they tend to forget is that a lot of coaches here in North America they double up, they may have full-time jobs, they coach part-time, but for the people that are working in football full-time here, you know, they have to do a variety of tasks to earn their keep. It's quite a multidisciplinary role between coaching adult soccer, coaching youth development, enhancing processes and controls, working in recruitment and video analysis, something which, you know, is um, apparent to yourself too, looking at your own journey, Dan. 
yeah, yeah, I've worn many different hats and, and done many different things on my way to to get into where I am now. Um, I think back to before I started at Brooklyn Italians and when I was working at St. John's, when I was coaching the, the under-14, under-15 team from Dix Hills, um, I also worked in a, like a sports performance gym because I was a big, slow centre-back. And uh, I figured if I could work in a, a sports performance gym for a, a company called Parisi, they were specialists in terms of making people faster, stronger, more agile. And they actually held, I think, like 75% of the um, top 40-yard dash times in the NFL combine were Parisi trained athletes at the time. So if I roll back a few years, I was like, all right, like I was this big, slow centre-back, but I think I was pretty smart tactically. I think I was pretty good technically, and I would do whatever you told me to do. I was like a soldier, right? So... <clears throat> I thought, well, what if I come across a player like that? How do I help a player like that who's maybe just missing a yard or two a pace? And I had all these coaches that tried different things with me, but nothing really worked, right? So I said, all right, well, you know, where could I go to study and get better and, and learn about how I could help a player who, who maybe suffers from the same thing I suffered from? So I went to Parisi and I worked with, you know, baseball players, tennis players, hockey players, soccer players as well. Uh, but all around the Parisi methodology in terms of how to get faster and stronger and, and more agile. And some of the things I use there, I still use to this day with players um, and, and build it into warm-ups and individual development plans and things like that. Um, so every little thing that I did in terms of, one, making sure I could pay the bills, um, and two, making sure that I always had an eye on, you know, yeah, I want to pay the bills, but I also want to get better at, at what I want to be. Um, so that's kind of how I combined the two. And, and like I said, I wore many different hats, but each hat I wore was always with a, a view to getting better as a coach. It's interesting because a previous guest on the show, Kirk Fallis, he's the chief creativity officer at Google. Yeah, what a task oh. that is. But um, he spoke about creativity. The definition he gave was the ability to take at least two disparate ideas and put them together. And obviously it can be tough at times, you know, knowing the nature of the football industry. But was there anyone at the time when you were a young coach, you were going around experimenting, was there anyone that was encouraging that curiosity that helped you to possibly even cultivate that creativity? Yeah, I think Adam. I think Adam, and uh, I don't want to make this podcast all about Adam Lawrence, but he, uh, he he definitely inspired me to get into coaching. And then when I was thinking of doing these different things, his answer would always be, yeah, like you should go for it. That's going to make you a better coach or you know, that's going to help you. Um, so Adam was was a big inspiration to me in terms of you know being curious, making sure you were getting enough time on the grass, making sure that you're out there experimenting and, and trying different things. Um, I think Dave Mazer as well at St. John's has always been an inspiration for me and, and always been somebody that has helped guide me in the right direction. Um, and then another good friend of mine, Jeff Mateo, uh, I was Jeff's assistant at the Jersey Express in what's now USL2 where we had a lot of success. Um, but Jeff's somebody that gave me a lot of opportunities, opened a lot of doors for me and, and somebody that also encouraged me to to follow whatever it was that I felt was right because he had a lot of belief in me as a, as a person and as a coach as well. So interesting, I mean, kind of zooming out again and looking at your own journey. I mean, it's been very non-linear, you know, growing up in London, going across to play college soccer in the States, getting into the college game, St. John's, you speak about Jersey Express there, we spoke about Brooklyn Italians. I suppose there wasn't too much that could prepare you for your next step after Brooklyn Italians moving out to Barcelona to work in Espanol's academy. 
did you take us through the series of events that took you out there, Dom? Yeah, it's a, it's a funny one. Um, so when I went there, I didn't speak a word of Spanish. I'd always been an admirer of Spanish football and, you know, loved the way, you know, Spain approached the game. Um, and some of the best coaches I'd seen while I've been in the States had been coaches either from Spain or trained in Spain. So uh, I guess the story really starts with, she was my girlfriend at the time, she's now my wife. But she called me one day and said she'd been accepted onto a master's course in Barcelona. Um, and, you know, was I coming with her or not? So uh, I'd been thinking that for me to grow as a young coach, I needed to get out and experience something different and where better place to do it in Barcelona, you know? Um, I think if you looked at, you know, the number one language spoken across the football world, it'd probably be Spanish. So I thought learning Spanish would be a great thing for me to to do. Um, and then I also felt like going away and just seeing a different way of doing things, understanding Spanish coaching methodology and, and different approaches to the game over there was going to be really beneficial for me. So I, I packed in my job. I gave up my visa to be in the US, um, moved over to Spain and didn't speak one word of the language. Um, <laughs> didn't have anywhere to live when we first got there. We were just renting an Airbnb, didn't have a job lined up. Um, and then kind of within a couple of weeks, everything kind of fell into place for me. And I, I guess I just got lucky really, but I put myself out there, was trying to meet people and I ended up connecting with a guy called Eloy Perez. Um, and I didn't know this at the time, but Eloy was a former captain at Espanol. And um, when I met him at the training ground, I didn't speak any Spanish, he didn't speak any English. And we're trying to communicate with each other and it was just a disaster. So uh, we're going back and forth and I'm trying to explain I'm a young coach, just want to get in and watch some training sessions, you know, study a little bit. So uh, anyway, I, I feel like I've made a bit of a mess of it. And I go home to our apartment, like we just moved into this apartment that was like two um, subway station stops away from Espanol's training ground. And uh, when I get home, my girlfriend says to me, oh, like, how did it go? And I'm like, oh, I think I blew it. And as I'm saying that, I get a text message from a lawyer and it says um, in Spanish, like, I have a little job for you. But at the time, I didn't understand what it meant, right? So I say, well, what does this mean to my girlfriend? She tells me. And um, I ended up working in a partner school for them, coaching uh, football salad, they call it. So I was coaching like an under-12 team and an under-10 team in one of their partner schools. And then within that partner school, one of their academy directors, Albert Villaroya, um, he was also the head PE teacher. So he would see me coach the team and, you know, we'd get talking and he ended up saying to me, why don't you come work for us in the pre-academy as well? So I'd go there, I coached uh, like an under-10 and an under-12 team. Uh, under 12 team in the in the pre-academy and then just kind of snowballed from there um, and I, I spent my days studying Spanish uh, pretty much from 8 until 4 every day I would study Spanish on the days I was coaching I would leave a little bit earlier and then every evening um, I was picking up different coaching jobs so if I was in Espanol I worked for a local club called Montañesa and there I was helping like the I guess that'd be under 7s here um, then I'd help with the under-14s. Then anytime there was a game going on, I was there. Like if there was a, a game going on in the third division, I was there. If there was a game going on in Espanol, I was there. And I'm just trying to consume as much as I could. You gave yourself time to be a student again, it seems. Yeah, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. I didn't feel like the brightest student because my Spanish took a lot longer to, to stick than I was hoping. Um, but eventually it did, and, and now I'm really comfortable kind of dropping into Spanish when I need to and, and you know, could run a full training session or presentation in Spanish, which 
I'm pretty proud of myself of because um, most people can't understand me when I speak English, you know. So pretty proud of that. I've got next two of us, and <laughs> I mean, I mean, a few years or so that you spent in Spain. I mean, how would you say overall, Dom, that it enhanced perhaps your coaching methodology or general game idea? Yeah, a couple of things I would take away from it. I think first and foremost, it probably gave me a lot of confidence because I saw some really good coaches um, who were doing the things I was doing, right, and, and just in a different environment, maybe with a few different twists here and there. So I think that gave me a lot of confidence and a lot of self-belief first and foremost. I think the second thing is, um, it also gave me a little bit of time and you know you spoke about when you're working in North America a lot of the time you have to wear a lot of different hats just to survive right if you're going to if you're going to try and be a coach so I think going over to Spain taking a little bit of time to myself to allow my ideas to sink in allow the things I was learning to sink in really allowed me to to focus on developing like my own game model and, and methodology to go along with it which, you know, if, you, if you're running from one job to the next, um, can be difficult to do, right, to, to find the time to really do that in a comprehensive fashion. Now, I think the further thing to come from it, and this is kind of linked to learning the language, is um, I think sometimes if, you, if you're coaching in a, a second language, you can maybe be more effective and more efficient with your words because I think your vocabulary is more limited. Right, so you've got to be a little bit more direct. And I think sometimes, you know, you might be guilty of this as well when, you, when you're coaching in English. Perhaps sometimes you're beating around the bush because it's your first language and you've got all these words that you want to use or get out there. Whereas if your vocabulary is a lot more limited in a second language, it's like, well, you've got to be concise and you've got to be to the point and that's probably more effective for the players because you're not there waffling for five minutes, right, trying to get your points out. Um, and so that made me think as well about my own coaching delivery style and and how I communicate with players. Can I be more concise? Can I be more succinct with what I'm saying as well? It's an interesting one. And I mean, pertinent again to the conversation you spoke about North America, they're having to wear so many different answers. This would be, obviously you left Espanol to go back to New York and take the job at the Cosmos. I mean, how did you find that experience, not necessarily going between jobs, but going between cultures and two very different environments where you left the hotbed of football culture in Europe, leaving Barcelona to go back to New York City, where football is just an afterthought, like most other sports. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's a good question. I think you know, in the US, football is growing, right? And soccer is growing. The interest in it is growing, but in in Europe and in South America, it's people's lives. It's a religion. Um, and I think just being around that, it, it makes you think a little bit differently about the game. And I think having been in the US for so long, perhaps, you know, those feelings, are, you forget what it's like, right? So then being in Spain for a couple of years, I think it really sharpened my senses in terms of what it meant to be in a, in a real kind of football country, so to speak. Um, coming over to the Cosmos was, was brilliant. Like I'd been based in New York before. I actually played against the Cosmos a, a bunch of times when I was the... MPSL head coach for the Brooklyn Italians and uh, Carlos Mendez who was the head coach is just just a wonderful guy he gave me the opportunity to be his right hand man um, and, and the Cosmos is a little bit different right? they, they obviously have a real strong history and tradition with some of the players that have played there and some of the success that the club has had so coming into the Cosmos was a little bit different and 
has always worked for these clubs or these programs that have been underdogs, right? Like Brooklyn Italians is, is very much an underdog. St. John's University, very much an underdog when you compare it to the Maryland's and the, the UNC's of this world. <clears throat> so then to work for the Cosmos that saw themselves as the biggest dog uh, was was perhaps a bigger cultural change than for me going from Spain to America because I was already familiar with America and New York City. Um, so that took a little bit of adjusting, just understanding the, you know, the scope of the club. I think the Cosmos is probably more well-recognised in terms of name than any other American club around the world. Um, so just being able to work there, the quality of the players that we had, uh, being around Carlos, all of that stuff was just incredible for me. And it was it's also my first experience of working at a professional level, right? at the MPSL level with Brooklyn Italians. Uh, the players were very good, but they were all trying to break into the pro game. Right? We didn't have any you know, proper pros there. Um, whereas at Cosmos, you know, we had guys like Antti Goli, who was the Albania captain, you know, played in the Euros, played against top, top players, played in Champions League. Um, we had a bunch of guys like that. Danny Zatella played for the national team here in the US. So I was working with a different calibre of player, you know, a more established player. Um, but Carlos was great, helped me adjust and the players were great, you know, very accepting of my ideas and what I was delivering. And I think that helped me adjust and, you know, get up to speed pretty quickly. And being part of that professional support staff probably for the first time in your career, what what was the big takeaway that you took away from that season at the Cosmos? It was a challenging season because it was COVID. Mm. Um, so uh, I think I signed my contract at the beginning of February 2020. And there I was all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, you know, my first opportunity to work at first team level in the pro game. And I think a month later, COVID hit. And our season was kind of blown up. Uh, we ended up playing, I don't know, maybe eight to 12 games that year. Um, but it was great just to be exposed to it, exposed to the, the cadence of the professional game. So I think it's very different to working in the youth game or, or the college game. Um, I think just being around proper pros and, and seeing how they carry themselves on a day-to-day basis, I think was um, really beneficial for me. And then being around a guy like Carlos, um, you know, Carlos is, is first and foremost just a great person. He's got time for everybody who's honest, uh, very trustworthy. And just being around someone like Carlos, um, seeing how he led the group, seeing how he communicated with people. Uh, one, for me, I was really impressed. But then two, you know, tried to take a lot of that into my own coaching and my own leadership style. Yeah, it seems to be very like a very common thread from people coming on the podcast. You know, getting that first or perhaps could be second or third job in pro football. The importance of having that role model. Or that father figure kind of mentor to bring people along the path seems to be very, very important. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think I've had a lot of different people that have helped me in a lot of different ways. Um, but Carlos is the one that, that kind of brought me into the pro game. And we've coached against each other, like I said, when I was with Brooklyn Italians and, and he was with the Cosmos. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess his assistant had left. And he, he called me and said, look, do you want to get lunch? And he spoke to me about coming on to be his, his number two. And everybody had told me what a great guy Carlos was and, you know, what he was going to be a great coach and he's this and he's that and he'd only, he'd only just stopped playing. Um, so immediately when I sat down to have lunch with him, you know, I felt comfortable in his company and felt comfortable with his ideas in terms of how he wanted to play, how he wanted to manage the group. Um, and then he gave me a lot of trust and, and you know, gave me a lot of responsibility, which I think uh, was really good for me and my development as well. So I'm super thankful to Carlos and, and we're still in touch regularly today. And then all roads led to El Paso. 
Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's a funny one because anybody that has ever been to El Paso will tell you it's like living in Mexico just with American infrastructure. And um, I was very much a, a New York guy, I would say. Like if I was going to be in America, I, you know, it was New York or bust. Um, so then what happened is the Cosmos went out of business after that first year, I guess with COVID and everything else. The finances just didn't make sense anymore for the club. And uh, the owner, Rocco Camiso, had also acquired Fiorentina in that time. Um, it, it was a difficult period for the club. And I think financially, it just didn't make sense to continue. So, um, you know, myself, Carlos, the rest of the staff, we all found ourselves out of work. And uh, I was really down because I was like, wow, I just had my first taste of the programme. I feel like I'm going to be really good at it. I feel like I've, I've loved the experience. And now the rug's been pulled out from underneath me, so to speak. So um, I'd had a few different interviews with with different clubs uh, within the USL and nothing had quite worked out. And I was doing my A licence at the time with Mark Lowry, who, who's the, who was the head coach at El Paso Locomotive. And he spoke to me and said, look, there's a role here um, if, you, if you're interested. So we had a brief conversation, um, spoke to my wife about it. And basically she said to me, look, if, if you go back into youth football or, or doing something, different. I don't think you're going to be happy. I don't think you're going to be satisfied because this is what you've wanted to do for a long time. You've got to go for it. So with our blessing, we, we moved from day one in El Paso. I realised that Mark was a very, very good coach. Obviously, I've known of him through the A licence. I've watched these teams in, in Jacksonville in the past when he was in the NASL. Um, but then working with him on that first day, it really struck me what a good coach he was. Um, just the clarity of his ideas, how clear he communicated, um, the way he got his messages across to the players, I, I thought was excellent. So being around Mark for that year was was outstanding for me in terms of my development because I think a lot of my ideas were very similar to Mark's. Mark had just been in the programme a lot longer and been a head coach, obviously, for a long time. And his ideas were, were just so well developed that I think that really accelerated you know, my own development. Um, and then alongside that, I think the club in El Paso had some really good resources and we had a really strong, experienced locker room. Um, guys like Richie Ryan, Yuma, Adair Borelli, uh, Leandro Carrillo, uh, Andrew Fox. All of these guys were, were very good, experienced pros that had been there and done it in the USL, but then also, you know, in their home countries or, or overseas as well. So, you know, I think... A lot of the times as coaches, we talk about what we learn from other coaches and I learned a lot from Mark. Um, but then you also learn a lot from the players, right? And the conversations you have with the players, watching how the players respond to certain exercises or certain approaches to the game. Uh, you can take a lot from that as well. So, no, a really fantastic experience I had there, especially the first year. And, you know, researching for the show, obviously I haven't spoken to you before about your time in El Paso once you were there. There seems to be a culture of development there too. And it seems to be a big pool in terms of recruitment, bringing players and staff members such as yourself. Look, I mean, looking at the general area around, because what I wanted to touch upon was too, you had a dual role, not only assistant coach, you were managing the pathways there in El Paso. I think it'd be very informative for a lot of people listening to hear more about the games program that you began to implement down there. Yeah. Notwithstanding yeah. the geographical location of the place too. Yeah, I, I think um, El Paso is a hotbed. I think anyone that's familiar with US soccer knows that El Paso and a lot of the border towns really are hotbeds for, for talent. 
Um, when Mark brought me in, it was to be the assistant coach with the first team, but then also uh, be the head coach for the under-19 USL Academy program. So two nights a week on a Tuesday and a Thursday, um, we'd train the academy kids from, I think, seven until nine, uh, two nights a week. Then we'd have these sporadic USL Academy games. I think the first year we maybe had eight games or nine games, something like that. But what I noticed is straight away there was this incredible talent pool in El Paso that just wasn't getting the right training, wasn't getting the right amount of games to make them viable you know, um, prospects for the first thing. So I sat down with a club, sat down with Mark, and we said, look, there's a real opportunity here for us to produce players that can be sold for significant money um, obviously getting into our first team first, but then being sold for significant money to make the club more sustainable. And a big part of the club's ethos was about taking care of the local community, right? providing jobs, providing opportunity for people from the, the borderplex area. So thought about it, looked at ways that we could develop a games program, develop a, an academy program to get the kids in El Paso the, the best possible development opportunity. Um, and if you looked at MLS academies, a lot of them are doing their scouting in El Paso or some scouting in El Paso. So, you know, the, the best kids in El Paso, maybe at 12, 13, 14, 15, they're getting plucked and they're going to play for Austin or they're going to play for Real Salt Lake or, or some other academy, a residential academy or Dallas, somewhere like that. So I said, well, if we can provide a, a pathway into our first team, then maybe these kids don't leave El Paso, right? Because for every Ricardo Pepe that, that goes to Dallas at 14 and makes it, there's probably 10 other kids that don't make it, right? So perhaps we can develop something that can be more holistic for the players and better for the players overall and their families. Um, so that's what we did. We partnered with a high school that was across the street from our training ground. Um, we went out, I convinced the club to buy a, a, a minivan, so we'd pick up kids on the east side in the morning. We'd drive them over to our training ground. They'd train in the morning. Uh, then they'd go to school in the afternoon. And we'd drive them back over to the east side where most of them lived in the afternoon. Um, and then in terms of the games program, obviously pretty geographically challenged being in El Paso. So I looked at it and I said, all right, you know, the nearest USL club is New Mexico and it's four hours away. Then the nearest MLS club is, is probably Dallas, right? Nine hours away, wherever it was. So that's obviously a challenge, right, in terms of, you know, finding real games for these guys that they can play in. But you have FC Juarez across the border. We have the same ownership group and we can get door to door in probably half an hour. And FC Juarez play against different Liga MX teams or, or third division teams from Mexico all the time. So what we did is we built our games program to go over the border play against FC Juarez there under 20s, there under 18s. Um, we'd play against two third division clubs based in Juarez as well. We'd play against teams from Chihuahua, which was about three and a half hours away from El Paso. We'd still play the USL Academy games. Um, we'd then play against the UPSL teams. So from, I get probably been a two hour radius, there were probably four UPSL teams. UPSL is, is like a, um, like a men's league, uh, like a high level men's league, like almost like semi-pro, I guess you could equate it to. Um, so from one year where we had, I think, nine games for the academy, the following year, last season, I think there was about 50 games for the academy. Um, so just in terms of match minutes and experience and training hours as well, it went up exponentially. Um, and in that first year of the programme, 
I think we had five debuts from the academy. Um, I think of Diego Barca, uh, who scored a, a, an amazing goal, I think two or three games into his career. Um, Diego Garcia, who's, who's since gone on to play for North Texas in the FC Dallas network. Um, yeah, and then maybe another seven or eight kids go on to play for different colleges as well on scholarships, which wasn't happening in the past because in El Paso, a lot of the families are first-generation families and they've never really been exposed to education, what education can do, how to get into a university or college in America. Um, so the other piece of our games program, which I forgot to mention, is we'd play against local colleges or we'd drive 10 hours to California to play against some colleges there. And I just exposed these kids to, to something completely different because they're not all going to get in the first thing, right? We had to create pathways for some of them to set themselves up for life, to get an education paid for, because a lot of them, their families weren't going to be able to help in that area. So I think I'm probably most proud of the kids that went off and got into college, um, because I think that can be something that's life-changing, not just for them, but for future generations of their family as well. That's something as well. Um, having Jim Law on the show a few weeks ago, you know, speaking about the life skills approach to sports, and you can imagine that was quite formative for the guys and the families down there. Kind of listening to yourself in the club advocate a different pathway than it wasn't just first team or bust. Yeah, that was a big thing for me. Um, you know, without making this about my own story, I was a good student in England um, and got really good grades, but no one in my family had ever been to university or college or anything like that. So when I got my results through and my teachers were saying to me, oh, like, where are you going to go? You could go to this university or that university. I was thinking, what? Like, you know, people in my family weren't going to university. Um, so then, obviously, me being exposed to America, being able to come over on a scholarship, kind of changed my mindset towards education and what can be achieved with education. And uh, understanding that the families in El Paso, not that they were the same as mine, obviously very different, but... Um, perhaps similar mindset in terms of a lack of exposure to what higher education can do for you uh, and what sort of doors it can open. And, and that was a big part of why I wanted to do it. You know, I realised that it could be a game changer, um, not just for the kids themselves or, or their parents, but future generations as well. And, you know, you look at what a club was trying to do in terms of really tie in with the local community and create opportunities for the local community are, I think that matches up perfectly with what we were trying to do. Yeah, as well, like there's very little things that you can do that replicate that transition from youth level to first team football. But imagine the returns on those games must have been substantial. It must have been disparate returns too, right? Yeah, look, I think in some of the games, like we'd go and play against FC Warriors under 20s and get killed. Right? Um but then you'd play against the local men's team and, and these guys are trying to smash through every tackle and you've got to learn how to look after yourself. Um, and then you go and play against, you know, the, the colleges where physically they're a lot more developed um, and, and they learn that side of the game as well. You play against the other USL academies or MLS academies uh, and you're seeing a more technical and a more tactical game. So I think it was a really well-rounded program that we put together in a short space of time. Um, and I think if you speak to the players that experienced it in year one, it's obviously now in year two, obviously I'm no longer there. Um, I, I like to think that they all say they, they really got a lot out of it, whether it was an opportunity with a first team, whether it was regular training with a first team, or whether it was you know a, a door to college being opened for them. Um, so I think we ticked all the boxes. 
And, you know, whilst we're on the subject of speaking of pathways as well, I mean, your own journey, because this is the first season you've been head coach at the pro level, at least on. I mean, how's that experience been so far at Union Omaha? Yeah, it's been brilliant. It's been brilliant. I've really enjoyed it. Um, there's obviously been some ups and downs in the season. I think we we started um, pre-season and we didn't get beat all through pre-season and played some really good stuff. A few performances that were a little bit iffy. But I think for the most part, we're like, all right, you know, we're going to be okay. Um, we started the season in, in decent fashion and then we went through a period where we wasn't necessarily getting beaten every week. Um, we lost twice in a period of seven games, but we drew the other five. So we're in seven games without a win. And in a 32-game season, seven games is a lot. Um, so in your own head, you're asking questions, you're, you're doubting yourself, you're, you're thinking about what you could be doing differently. Um, and through those kind of internal questions I was asking them myself, it was all about, well, I feel like we're doing the right things. I feel like we're on the right track. Um, things are not just going our way right now. And I think we turned the corner, ended up winning three games on the spin. Um, and I think kind of what that process taught me is that sometimes football is just illogical, right? And and things just happen um, and you have no control over it. So I think the big takeaway from me so far this season has been making sure you you control the controllables and things outside your control, you, you just kind of let go. And if you can influence it, great. But try not to lose any sleep over it because um, there, there's plenty of things you could be lo- losing sleep over. 100%. And it's, you know what, it's something we were discussing off air before coming on the podcast as well. It's the same thing up here. You encounter moments of the season and that's the best way of putting it. They're just illogical. But I think it's within those moments for coaches and players alike that you have to kind of strive through them. And, you know, upon reflection, now, there's one or two key instances I can say for myself, speaking on behalf of the team up here, have been quite big turning points in our season as well. So it's interesting, like, just touching upon the seven-game winless run there. I mean, was there anyone that you would have turned to? Was there anyone perhaps in your immediate network or support staff that kind of helped you along the way? Yeah, yeah. I spoke to a lot of people. I mean, first and foremost, like the ownership group um, and and my general manager, Peter Marlett, those guys are really supportive through that period. And and I think they saw that we were playing some really good stuff. And I don't want to say like we were unlucky because it sounds like a bit of a cop-out. Um, but we were drawing a lot of games with, you know, late equalisers and, and things like that. So I think first and foremost, having the support from above was was really helpful. Um, it gave me a lot of confidence. And then, you know, I also speak to other coaches and people within my network pretty regularly as well. And, and you know, anyone that's been a coach for a while, they know that they've been through a period like this, right? They, they've lived it and they've breathed it and they've gone through the same feelings and experiences that I've had. So just being able to lean on, you know, two or three different people who've been through those rough patches um, was really helpful because they said, look, you, you are going to come out of it. You know, the team's playing well. You're doing all the right thing. You, you're not changing your message from one week to the next. Eventually it's going to turn uh, and it did. And, you know, hopefully now we can kick on for the rest of the season. Interesting. Like, you know, on the show, I touch upon the whole time, you know, people's pathways to positions of hierarchy in terms of CEO, first team coach, technical director, so on and so forth. I mean, looking back upon reflection, do you think your journey would have been possible to this current day, day without the magnitude of experiences which you've undertook? It's a good question. I, I mean, it's a good question because I think I've taken like a, a number of calculated risks 
um, like going to Spain to me was a calculated risk because I knew it would make me a better coach and I knew it would add Spanish into my toolbox, uh, which I knew would make me, you know, especially in the US, it would make me a more attractive proposition as a coach. So I knew those things going into it. Um, and it wasn't like, all right, if I learn Spanish, I know I'm going to end up as a USL1 head coach one day, right? Like I had no idea where it was going to take me. It was just, I guess, my own first for learning that, that took me there. Um, I think perhaps these opportunities would have come around, but I probably wouldn't be as, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess well-developed as I am now if I didn't take those opportunities, right? And I didn't take those calculated risks. And everybody's pathway is different, right? Like there's there's plenty of guys out there that are coaching that you know, didn't give everything up to go and coach in Spain for two years, you know, without knowing anything. So um, I guess it, it depends. I guess it depends. And I think eventually you'll end up in a place where you want to be and, and where you feel like this is the next logical step for me. And sometimes that deviates, right? Sometimes you, you get to a level and you realise, okay, maybe this is not what I expected it to be and that might lead you into something else um, or you get somewhere and it, it adds fuel to the fire and you're like, all right, I really want to continue with this. Um, and I think that can look different for different people. And I, I think the big thing I would say to anybody who's listening is everybody's pathway is unique, right? Just because I, I did what I did and I experienced a little bit of everything doesn't mean that I'm a better first-team coach, right? Because there could be somebody that has only ever worked at the higher age groups or at first-team level, and they don't need the knowledge that's down there working with under sevens and in a rec program and all that sort of stuff. Um, do I think it helps? Yeah, I do. But I also think if you've had a ton of experience at the top end, um, you, you would not be surprised by many things that come your way at the top end, right? Whereas if you've experienced everything on the spectrum, then you get to the top end, there's going to be one or two things that surprise you that happen at the top end, right? Because you haven't been exposed to it before. You've been dealing with parents at a younger age or, um, you know, tournaments and things like that. Whereas if all you've done is the pro game, like if you're a player, right, you played for 20 years as a pro, go into coaching in the pro game, you, you might be shocked by the intensity of the work that you have to do behind the scenes to begin with. I don't think there's going to be many other things in terms of dealing with players and the way players think, the way players feel, the game plan, stuff like that. There's going to be a complete surprise to you, if that makes sense. 100%. And, I mean, with that being said, looking at the future, I mean, you, in fact, deep down will know where you want to get to, but is there anything that you're currently studying aside from the day, the day job in terms of football, leadership, sport, or otherwise, that's going to prepare you for that next advent in your career? Yeah, um, I do a lot of reading. I like reading about leadership. I like reading about different approaches to leadership. I like reading about people that have experienced it. Um, and, and that's not just in football. Right? It might be business, it might be politics, it might be uh, in the army, things like that. Um, so I'm always reading about those different things. And I think I've got a lot of different interests. Um, I love coaching. I love working at first team level. I think there's nothing like the feeling of, working all week, playing on a Saturday and then seeing your ideas come to life to win a game. Um, that feeling is pretty incredible. But then on the flip side of that, the feeling of doing all that work, getting to a Saturday and then getting beaten is, is uh, a pretty uh, devastating one as well. So um, I think the emotions are, are really what keeps people interested in football. And 
I love what I do. I'm really enjoying being a first team head coach. I think one of the things that I've thought about doing in the future is pivoting into more of a technical director role so I can touch on a little bit of everything. Because as a first team head coach, you really don't have time for anything outside of the first team. Whereas if you're a technical director, you can be involved in the recruitment side of things, you can be involved in the academy, you can be involved in, in the first team as well. Um, so so who knows? Right? I think my big thing now is trying to focus on what I'm doing now and being the best I can be at this because I see a lot of people in, in football um, who are ambitious, which is great, but then they tend to think about what's next all the time. But if you don't focus on the here and now, you never get to what's next. Um, and I see a lot of people that they want to skip one or two steps to try and get to what's next. And by doing that, they lose sight of the present day and then they never get to what they want next because they've you know, cut some corners along the way. Pretty good advice, but um, I mean, overall, Dom, it's been absolutely fascinating to hear from yourself today, to learn about your journey. I mean, it's taken us from London, being a Spurs fan, unfortunately, all the way across <laughs> college soccer in the States, New York, the Cosmos, Espanol, to your current role as first team coach at Union Omaha. And there's been plenty of lessons I've taken from this now, and I'm jotting away like mad in the legal pad here beside me, but um. You know, as routine, as per routine, as we close every show, I ask the guest for what would their one big bit of advice for anyone that wishes to thread a similar path in the industry? What will your one big bit of advice be for them? I think it would be stay hungry, hungry to learn, hungry to study, hungry to get better, hungry to work, and then stay open, you know, don't think that you have all the answers. Stay open, listen to what other people have to say, understand other different points of view. And I think if you do those two things, you're hungry and you're open, then I think a lot of good things will come your way. Um, and that's that's kind of what I've tried to do, you know, throughout my career is always be hungry for a little bit more and always be open to understanding other viewpoints and other ways of doing things as well. Fantastic. Dom, it's been an absolute pleasure to host you on the show today. Top man, thanks for having me, Connor.